Father in heaven, uh, we come before you uh, as a people that you love, that you died for, that you care for. Uh, Jesus, we come underneath the authority of, the, of your word, and we first just want to thank you. We're grateful that we have your words that we can read, that we can share with one another, that we can speak over one another, that we can worship you with. Um, so, God, we just ask for your spirit to move. It's um, so easy to come in with, with our hearts calloused, um, and we ask that you would remove those and just pierce into the very center of our soul, Jesus. Uh, teach us this afternoon, we pray, God. May it's in your name. Amen. In the business world and sports, there can be this focus on the mental game. You can train hard, you can have talent, you can have great business strategies, but you also need to be great at the, the mental game. There's this idea of a, of a winning mentality. When you watch any sport with timeouts, that's one of the reasons that they use them is because they'll see like, uh, that their team isn't doing well, they're losing points, the other team's getting ahead, and so they take a timeout. Why? Because they're trying to get their team off of a losing mindset, get them into a winning mindset, and hopefully do the reverse to the other team, get them into a losing mindset. So when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to his people, when it comes to the church, we have to have a last mentality. A last mentality. Let me help you understand what that looks like. My grandpa on my mom's side worked as a social worker at one point for a boy's home called Boys Town. It started in Omaha, Nebraska. And we recently went past it, and I can't even remember if I caught sight of it, but in front of that boy's home, there is a statue. And here is a story from their website behind the, that image up there of the statue. Back in 1918, a boy named Howard Loomis was abandoned by his mother at Father Flanagan's Home for Boys, which had opened, which had opened just a year earlier. Howard had polio and wore heavy leg braces. Walking was difficult for him, especially when he had to go up or down steps. Soon, several of the home's older boys were carrying Howard up and down the stairs. One day, Father Flanagan asked Reuben Granger, one of the older boys, if carrying Howard was hard. Reuben replied, he ain't heavy, Father. He's my brother. But the story doesn't end there. In 1943, Father Flanagan was paging through a copy of Ideal magazine when he saw an image of an older boy carrying a younger boy on his back. The caption read, he ain't heavy, mister. He's my brother. Immediately, the priest was reminded of a photo of Reuben carrying Howard at the boys' town picnic many years before. Father Flanagan wrote to the magazine and requested permission to use the image, and quote. The magazine agreed, and Boys Town adopted them both to define its new brand. Nearly 75 years later, the motto is still the best description of what our boys and girls at Boys Town learn about the importance of caring for each other and having someone care for them. He ain't heavy is relevant beyond Boys Town, though. At some point in our lives, most of us have needed to be carried by someone, metaphorically speaking. And at some point, we probably carried somebody else. We're human, we stumble, and we look to each other for help when we do. This is what a last 
mentality looks like. And it's what Jesus often is instructing his disciples to embody when he says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So this phrase is right before the passage we are looking at today, and it's the very last phrase of the passage in Matthew 20, 1 through 16. It's the point of today's message. And the the phrase describes those who get the message, those who get the, the gospel of Jesus. The phrase describes the very culture God's people should be displaying in their life. The church should be known by this phrase, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Radiant church here, us today, should be known by this phrase. It's not about how prominent our church is. It's not about prestige by the world standards. It's not about whether we have a building or not. It's about the last being first and the first being last. So as as we walk through Matthew 20, we're going to look at a parable that Jesus shares with his disciples to help them understand what this looks like. First, how to establish a last mentality, what it looks like when we lose a last mentality, and then finally, how we regain a last mentality. So let's just walk through this together. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. I'm just going to back up one verse as Jesus was finishing instructing his disciples, and he can, this is a continuation of this instruction. So in Matthew 19, verse 30, it says, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came... The owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them with their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. We'll take a pause there. There's a couple observations about what we're seeing here. We've got this master who is hiring at all hours for people to work in his vineyard. So he starts out by going early in the morning. This is at dawn, somewhere around 6 a.m. This is... Fairly normal in harvest season to hire people waiting in the marketplace for work. Another image that may come to mind if you've watched like movies or documentaries from uh, the Great Depression is when you've got a lot of uh, or a little bit of work to be done, but a lot of people who are needing to work. People will often congregate in a place and they're hoping to get a job, hoping to be hired because if they get hired. That means they can eat that day. It means that their family can eat that day. But what's interesting about this master is he's constantly looking for workers. And it's almost as if there's no time that is too late. He starts hiring at 6 a.m. and then around 9, noon, and beyond until very close to the end of the day. The master cares about the people working in the vineyard, not about the time that he hires them. Another thing we see about this master is he hires idle workers. 
So there are men that are going into the marketplace or waiting to be hired. Idle is kind of an interesting word that's used. On one hand, it could be just as simple as that they don't have any work, and so they're just sitting there not doing any work. But it could mean that they're also maybe not the most valuable workers in the world. And your ability to earn an income for your family is dependent on this idea of someone hiring. So without being hired, they would remain idle. They would remain useless or good for nothing. But then we also see that the master also makes an agreement. So starting with the people early on in the day, he gives them a day's wages. That's what a, a, a denarius would be. So in today's terminology, that would be what? Like $15 an hour if they work for 10 hours, they're making $150 for the day to be able to pay for whatever they need to to be able to live life. And it's the master who's making, who's, who's the one driving all this. He's the one who's making the hire. He's the one who sets the wage. And then later on, uh, as he hires more people, he tells them that he's going to pay what is right. So he's the one who decides what is right. It's only by the goodwill of the master that anyone is hired at all. So if we stop at verse 7, all the workers are on the same playing field at this point. They are grateful for work. They have come to receive the goodness that the master will give them. They've been hired. They're working together to see this harvest of grapes in a vineyard is taken care of. So in one sense, they all have a last mentality because there is this gratefulness for the graciousness of the master. And so that, that's where we pause here and say, okay, for us, when we think about being the last, having a last mentality, it starts with a right view of God that comes by faith. See, when we look at a parable, especially in the midst of a teaching, we have to ask ourselves, okay, who are these characters? What's going on here? We have a master, and if you back up in Matthew 19, Jesus defines himself as the one who is the authority. In, in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we have a, a master, someone who's that ultimate authority. That's Jesus. He is the one. He is the, the true authority, the ultimate king. He's the master. And then you got people who are hired, who are working for him. And that's, that's the, the same with the disciples. What we just read, they are the ones who are coming in and working the vineyard. This is for anyone who has followed Jesus. In fact, what, what's happening here is very similar to what we read back in the early parts of Matthew. When, what, is, what does Jesus say to, those, uh, to, to his disciples when he's initially calling them? He says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so the vineyard represents that kingdom that Jesus is making, that he is starting. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The marketplace is outside of that kingdom. So he is hiring people from the marketplace, bringing them into the vineyard. So the hiring in this story is akin to salvation. It's putting faith in Jesus. It's, it's responding to the call of come follow me. It's when we put the broken pieces of our life in his hands. We repent of our old life, putting faith that Jesus will make us new. We are hired into the kingdom. You see, and when you put your faith in Jesus, 
to follow him. We understand we have nothing to offer. Just like these workers who are out there. Yes, they are coming into the work. Does the master need them? Does Jesus need us? And the answer is no, he doesn't need us, but he's hiring us. He loves us. He wants us to be in his kingdom working for us. He wants to give us purpose. When you put your faith in Jesus, you understand that the most important thing isn't when you got saved, but that you got saved in the first place. So when Jesus saves you, you come to Jesus with this last mentality because you realize there is nothing good in and of yourself, just you on your own, but your value comes from the master, comes from Jesus. He gives you life when you are lifeless in the marketplace. He gives you purpose when you were idle. He gives you a relationship by agreeing to a wage and inviting you into his workplace, and he tells you what, what we get in Matthew 19, 29 where he says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So this is the, the good news of Jesus. And so you have to pause even at this point and ask, okay, are you one of those workers who are idle in the world today. So many people right now are trying to fill up life with something else and coming up empty, finding that any purpose you find in the world outside of Christ is going to come to an end at some point. The only true purpose for humanity is found in a relationship with Jesus. And it, and it may be that you grew up understanding Christianity as religion. You may know facts about Jesus, but you haven't turned from your life that you're living and given everything to Jesus. So Jesus, the good master, the great savior, is inviting you from the marketplace of the world and saying, come, follow me. Put your idol life away. Turn from the worthless ways of the world and come, follow me. And so when Jesus saves us or hires us, we have a new master now. But you see, you haven't been brought into the vineyard, into the kingdom of God to sit around and stare at grapes. God gives you a purpose. He desires to put you to the work that he created you for. Just like he told his disciples, come, follow me, and what? I will make you fishers of men. We have a job to do. We're to go and help Jesus with the harvest, bringing other people in to the kingdom. So when we have a, a last mentality, we aren't putting ourselves at the center of our life anymore. We have put Jesus as our master at the center of our life, the director of all that we have, the director of all that we are. And, and Paul understood having a last mentality when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.26. He said, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Of God. That is a last mentality. 
But as we continue to read the story, we can see even as followers of Jesus, we can easily lose this way of viewing the world, and it gets twisted. So starting in chapter 20, verse 8, let's, let's follow this parable. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? We'll pause there. So this part of the story is meant to draw us into tension. So starting with the last, the master pays each one his wage. And this, this is interesting to read. So in verse 10, it says, Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. I mean, can you imagine, just put your place, put, put yourselves into the mindset of these workers. Like, you have worked and sweated all day, like 10, 11 hours, and you watch the guy who's only worked for like one hour get a full day's wage, and in your mind, you're thinking, I've hit bank. I got chosen by the right master. I'm about to get like 11 days wages. I mean, it's like getting in more than a week of, of, of a paycheck, like right then. So they have these expectations that are developing in their hearts. But then they also got the same pay. Those who thought they would be first in pay end up being last, not because they've actually lost anything, but because their view of the situation has been broken. Their heart is revealed as they watch everyone else getting paid. They worked more, so they feel they deserve more. <laughs> they, and that's why they say, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal with us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And, and I mean, we get this. I mean, especially as in our American society, the complaint makes sense. I mean, they should really form a union so they get the pay they deserve, right? But that's the problem, they have come to believe that they deserve something more than their brothers. These grumbling workers now have expectations on the master who hired them. And they believe that he's not fair. See, Jesus intentionally wrote this story for the disciples. He wants them to feel the tension. This actually, as I was preparing this message, it changed how I viewed uh, chapter 19 because it's important to get the context. We're in the middle of a teaching that Jesus is giving. And in the previous story that we lost saw was this rich young ruler who came to follow Jesus but didn't want to give up his wealth in order to follow him. And Jesus is instructing them about this. And then Peter asks a question in Matthew 19, 27. And this, this story is in response to this question. He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What then will we have? So, so Jesus is addressing their first mentality. They're, they're concerned about, okay, what's going to happen to me? Like, we've been doing all this stuff. I mean, think about what the disciples have been doing. 
We're coming to the end of Jesus' ministry. They've been walking with him for like a year or two. They have literally walked away from their job to go follow Jesus. They've even like left their dad in the boat working to go follow Jesus. Like these guys have given up a lot. And, and, and I think we, we can understand that if you've been following Jesus for a long time, sometimes without realizing it, we develop, develop certain expectations. Like, Jesus, I've given up a lot. I've walked through a lot. What am I really going to get from following you? And this is where we begin to lose a last mentality. See, the first workers forgot what they had been before their master hired them. They, now there's two things that have developed. First, they believe they deserve something more, and they expect things that the master didn't promise. They believe that they deserve something more, and they expect that the things that the master didn't promise. And, and what does this do? Like the, the workers are looking at life with themselves being first, and by doing so have put themselves in a place they can't handle. Whenever you put yourself in a place of being first, this is why like people who get really famous um, have a lot of issues that they have to deal with because you're not meant to be the most famous. There's only one who is truly good. There's only one who is truly glorious and famous. There's only one who can be first, and that's Jesus. We can't handle the load of the master. As soon as we begin to think we deserve something from God or expect something he hasn't promised, we slide out of that last mentality and we begin to see life in a very distorted way. We're not seeing life the way it should be. So notice when they lose this mentality, it affects their view of their fellow workers and the master. See, the master is no longer good. He's no longer generous, but he's unfair and unjust. Their, their fellow workers are lesser than them. They've done the work, so therefore they deserve, they, they don't deserve as much because they did lesser work and these guys did more. Gregory the Great said this about this parable. He said, God is not less good because we in our distorted, distorted perception think we have been unfairly treated. No one can boast of this gift. So what if that's us today? Have, have we lost this last mentality about the last being first and the first being last? Are we getting swamped making life about ourselves rather than about Jesus? And, and if so, how do we regain this perspective? And that's the, the last part of this parable, starting in verse 13, chapter 20. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and, and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. What I love about this response is the master simply reminds the workers about who he is and what he's done for them. He reminds them that he, he first of all, reminds them that they're his friends. 
Like, I love this. Like, the master could come down, like, harsh on these guys. And yet, how does he start? He says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. There's a relationship there that he's reminding of them. He reminds them that he has done nothing wrong. He hasn't been unjust. He gave them exactly what he promised. He reminds them that he is sovereign in his giving and in his choosing. He reminds them of his authority. He is the king. He's the master. God chooses what to give and who to give it to. Finishing up this reminder, the master, the, the, the master says an interesting phrase in this parable. He says, or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, if you have the King James Version or the New King James Version, it says it actually a little bit more word for word. It's, is your eye evil because I am good? Is your eye evil because I am good? This, this is like a word picture or an idiom for the Jewish people. So an idiom is uh, like one in our American culture from a long time ago is, oh, that's the kettle calling the, the pot black, something like that. Thanks, Josh, for the thumbs up. <laughs> um, so only if, if you're in the culture and, and are familiar with that, you kind of know what it means when it's like someone who's calling out another person and saying like, hey, you're a hypocrite when like actually you're acting like a hypocrite too. And they're like, hey, what are you doing? And then you say that idiom. So this is similar. It's a word image and picture and it's, you can just feel it a lot more. Is your eye evil because I am good? It's saying like, your eye is bad. Your sour heart is affecting you so much that you have distorted vision and what is good now is no longer good. To you? Are you begrudging my generosity? Instead of seeing all the good I've done for you and the good I'm doing for others, you're seeing it completely in the wrong way. You are expecting to receive more than your brother. You've missed the point. And in doing so, these guys have missed the heart of the master. They've missed who he is. And so the master rebukes his friends so that they can regain this last mentality. Jesus, in many ways, is rebuking his disciples to help them see life in the right way. So when Jesus wraps up the, the parable, he reminds his disciples, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. So how do we regain this mentality? If, we, if we've lost it, if, if God is being shuffled to the side of our life, we're beginning to expect things that he hasn't promised. We think we deserve things that we don't really deserve. Sometimes when, when we start waking up to this, it can feel like we're in a pit in many ways. Like, how do I get out of this? It's impossible to live out what God has called us to do. And yet we have the answer, don't we, with what Jesus told his disciples, again, back in Matthew 19, 26. Jesus said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So if we're looking to regain this mentality, to look at life in this way, really, the answer is given to us in the parable. It's really simple. In verse 14 of chapter 20, he says, take what belongs to you and go. Take what belongs to you and go. <laughs> Instead of looking at others, look to Jesus again. Look to him as the master, as the savior. Remember what he says about who he is 
and all the good promises that he's given his people. I mean, this is why we have a relationship with God. This is why he, we have his word that we can interact with. This is why we preach his word on a regular basis because it's so easy to lose this mindset, to lose this view of life. One of my professors in seminary, Doug Ponder, said this, it is vital that Christians learn this truth that gratitude is redeemed humanity's fundamental response to God and that scriptures were written in large part to teach us how to give thanks to the Lord. Like it all goes back to when they were hired, to when you first believed, to get back to that place of realizing, man, I don't deserve anything. The fact that I get anything from God is amazing. He, he not only provides for your needs, and not just temporary, but eternal, but he provides abundantly even in this life for what we truly need for our soul. And so... We need to look to the master. We need to look to Jesus instead of getting sucked into looking at others and measuring ourselves up to them. But then we also use what Jesus has given us to help our brothers. Like, I like kind of the simplicity of this phrase, like, take what belongs to you. So understand what I've given you. Understand who I am. And now go. It's very similar to the end of how Matthew wraps up. Um, while this doesn't have the same emphasis, the missional emphasis that Matthew 28 does, is there's that practicality of like, okay, go. Go out. Go use what I've given you. Use it to help others. Use it to help your brothers. Use what you have to move others towards the kingdom. We are called to be and make disciples. We're called to be there, to har- be part of the harvest. You're called to love others like Jesus loved us. Jesus is the only one deserving to be first, and he became last to provide us the means of our salvation. Paul paints another picture of this idea of being last like Jesus. So hopefully in understanding this parable, you can look at a pretty common passage, Philippians 2, 3 through 11, in a different way. So just, just listen. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking a form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So how do we put this into practice? How do we put this into practice? That's why I opened up with the story I did about this boy's home and how their whole culture was centered around this image of an older boy carrying a younger boy who has polio, who can't really walk well on his own, and they're carrying him. To me, it's taking that concept and moving it into all the relationships that God has put you in. So the question I would ask is, what what is maybe the most difficult relationship right now for you? What is the most difficult relationship? Whether it's a spouse, a friend, a parent, 
your brother, your sister, a coworker? What is the most difficult relationship now? It may be one, it may be several. Maybe it's your relationship with God. How can you have this last mentality towards them that puts God at the center? What does that look like? And I would encourage, like, sometimes preaching from up here, I want to just give the answer. But I think with these things, we have to sit with it on our own. We have to sit with this passage and ask, okay, God, am I viewing people around me like those guys who worked all day? And so I look at others looking down on them rather than seeing them through the lens of Jesus. So what is your most difficult relationship right now? How can you have a last mentality towards them? And then you don't have to do it with your most difficult relationship. You can also do it with relationships that are going well. That's a way to maintain good relationships is you ask that. Like, how, how can I keep maintaining this last mentality? When we get this, the church really becomes the church. Like, like if, if you've grown up with this kind of sour taste in your mouth with, for the church, if you've been in a church environment that feels just kind of stale and plastic, this is, you, this is what's missing. This, this is the exact thing that is missing. Take, for instance, that, that boy's home. What, what if the older boys didn't carry the younger one who had polio? What if they just ignored him? And he would come to the bottom of the stairs and try to either crawl his way up or just do some awkward, like, sitting on the step, hauling himself up. What if that was? Can you imagine being in that environment where people are just turning a blind eye to this kid who is suffering? Like, what a poor, cold place that would be. But how different is it when you hear that phrase, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. The church also, likewise, can be a cold place because you have people who have a first mentality, looking to get ahead of others or protect their own stuff or just come in the church, get what I need, and get out. Or it can be a warm place, a welcoming place, a place of truth. And I love my brothers and sisters here because I have seen this mentality in others here at Radiant. And so... Our job is to keep it going, to own this in our homes, to own this in our church, and then we become the church God desires of us. So how can you be a part of making, raiding a place where we can say of each other, you aren't heavy, you're my brother, you're my sister. So we're going to continue our worship today. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish off with the sermon. We're going to sing some more songs. When we're done with the songs, we're going to pack up the chairs, put out some tables, have a meal together. But as we continue, the question I have is, do you need to be renewed? Maybe, maybe you've lost this kind of mentality. And you've been struggling and realizing, man, I'm fighting an uphill battle against God and I've got my head in the wrong space and maybe you're wearing yourself out because you have a first mentality instead of a last mentality. And this is, this is the time to use this time to be able to cry out to Jesus, to ask your brothers and sisters 
here for help. Because sometimes, this is the hard part, polio, you can see that someone's broken and in need. But often with the issues of the soul, we can tend to want to cover things up and just keep it to ourselves. So I encourage you, like as we're singing, maybe you need to be prayed over. Ask someone who's here. I'm going to be up front. I would love to pray over you. Or maybe you've realized that you're not in the vineyard in the first place. You don't have a relationship with God. And you're feeling that vacant idleness, that purposelessness in life. And my encouragement is come follow Jesus today. Come and be prayed over. So, so the way we kind of form our response is every week when I'm done preaching, we take communion. It's our way to run to Jesus with whatever we've been carrying on our backs. If we're followers of Jesus, communion is for you. And if you put your faith in Jesus to, today, like communion is for you, we take it every week because it's this active, sacred metaphor of what Jesus Christ has done for us, that his body was broken on the cross, that he became last for us, that he hung there on that cross, that he became sin in our place, that he took the wrath of God that we deserve for for our sin, for our evil. He took the wrath of God. His body was broken. His blood was shed. And so we, we take that bread, we dip it into the juice, we eat of it because it's not only showing our reverence and our need, constant need for Jesus in our life, but it's also reminding us that we're one. Like, that's what's why we even have matzah bread, and we've gone back to that in, in many ways, is because it's, it's a whole piece of bread. It's broken into little bits so that you can easily grab it. But it's the idea of, like, when you break that bread off from, from a piece, it's reminding us that we are one in Christ that we are family by his blood that is, thicker than any, that is thicker than anything. So I'm gonna pray. And then after I'm done praying, I encourage like, take that first song, take communion. If you need to be prayed over, be prayed over and don't, don't hold back because of fear. And then after that, if, if you have kids, we encourage, go get the kids, bring them in so that we can sing together, all of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, I'm, I have been that sick boy that you carried. And I've been that sick boy that other people in the church have had to carry. Jesus, and I've been part of helping carry others. And God, sometimes it's easy when we try to do it on our own, do it on our own terms, try to force life through our perspective that we just become tired and exhausted rather than joyful for what you have done. So God, what I just pray is if we've slipped into that mentality where we're seeing lens through, through us being at the center, through everything weighing on our shoulders, and if people are coming in tired and exhausted, I just pray, Jesus, help us come to you and to remember that your burden is light. That, that what you give us when we come into your kingdom isn't because we're some like awesome people, but we're broken idol workers that you called when we didn't deserve it. So I just pray, Jesus, help us just to 
walk underneath the shower of your grace right now to be dependent on you, to trust in you, to walk into this next week with our heads held high because we have a Savior who died in our place. And then we can face whatever troubles or trials are going to hit us this week because you carry us, Jesus. That we have a church family that reminds us of that. So God, turn Radiant Church and, and keep us into that place of reminding ourselves that the last will be first and the first will be last. I thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray.